Hello and welcome to the Ear Fuel Podcast. As always, I'm Joel Freemark, and you can follow me on Twitter at, at @getearfuel and at the Daily Guru. The podcast is available at SoundCloud.com/getearfuel and in the iTunes and Google Play stores under Ear Fuel. Before we get going, I want to make a note that a lot of people over the last week asked for a list of all of those records that I rattled off as entry points into different genres in the last podcast. If you missed the last podcast, we talked about kind of how to get into new music and new to you music. And uh, I gave a lot of ideas on how to get into hip hop and jazz and heavy metal and punk, all sorts of stuff. Now, since my new website is still under construction, I have posted the complete list, all of those albums that I named on the EarFuel Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash get EarFuel. So if you kind of missed them and you want to know, hey, what was that one record that Joel was talking about? Go check it out and enjoy. Anyway, uh, over the next few weeks, I have a bunch of really cool interviews coming in, so I wanted to use this podcast to get a bit of a rant off of my chest. But before we do that, a quick look at a new record that I really dig. The album I want to check out today is called Everything is Beautiful, and it's the latest offering from Robert Glasper. Now, if you're not familiar with his work, go check out his Black Radio album and get schooled. He's a jazz pianist and director by trade, but he's worked with everyone from Kanye West to Mos Def to Erica Badu, Common, so many others. This guy is a genius, plain and simple. Anyway, this record is... You know, I think Sony were hoping that this would be an album of Robert Glasper remixing the music of Miles Davis, but instead, these are more like reimaginings. Glasper had full access to the original multi-track recordings from the Columbia Recording Sessions. That's, you know, all the music, the outtakes, the studio chatter, everything. And he's able to work them in so many different ways here. The one word that kept, I kept thinking over and over and over across every second of this album was the word cool from top to bottom this album oozes cool and chilled vibes and yet there's so much depth and diversity that it's it's beyond captivating really the opening track finds glasper turning a studio comment on just an aside from miles into an instrument onto itself and oh it is so wonderfully funky and it's got this killer groove to it it's like throughout the record Glasper was able to take all of these old recorded elements and spin them into something completely modern, often bordering on like a future sound at times. The keys all around are definitely the highlight. You can't help but get into them, and that makes sense because it's him. But the way that the songs flow into one another, it it, it just makes this overall like more enchanting, I think, is the word I want. That, that really in my brain is the only word that fits. This record is enchanting. Whether it's the perfect use of Erica Badu's voice on the bossa nova-tinged song So Long, Hiatus Coyote helping on uh, Little Church, and they're, they're able to find that space between peaceful and spaced out, or Stevie Wonder doing his thing on the song Right On, Brother, it's the way that Glasper forms every song in a distinctively magnificent manner that keeps you coming back for more. Every spin, every time you play this album, it highlights a new just awesome moment, trust me. This record has it all, bouncing beats, fantastic riffs on every instrument, and vocals you can't help but love. I think Everything is Beautiful is just that. It's beautiful, and it's wonderfully original. And for jazz fans across the spectrum to, you know, if you dug the last Kendrick Lamar or D'Angelo record, or really anyone, if you love cool, good music, this album is nothing short of a treat for your ears. So do your ears a favor and put this record into them. You won't be sorry. Moving on, for whatever reason, it seems that 2016 is bound to be the year of the so-called supergroup. 
Rumor has it that Rage Against the Machine is going to reform without Zack, but with Chuck D from Public Enemy and Be Real from Cypress Hill on vocals. We also know that members of the Deftones are working on a project with the guys from the Bad Brains. Mastodon is working with Queens of the Stone Age. Uh, William Duvall, who's currently fronting Alice in Chains, has, has done stuff alongside the Mars Volta and Dillinger Escape Plan, some other bands. It goes on and on and on. It seems every single week we have a new band being toyed as this is a super group. Now, don't get me wrong. I am all in favor of bands cross-pollinating to see what new sounds can be developed. I think it's a great idea. But in most cases, these bands, these new bands that they all come together to form, they basically end up sounding like cover bands of each member's band because the balance just goes all over the place. When you get to this level of talent or success or... Or let's be honest here, when you get to that level of ego in one room, it rarely works out how people hope, and it turns into one giant ego wank after another. It's an extremely rare case when a true, unique, like new-sounding group comes from one of these gatherings, and they tend for the most part to be somewhere between forgettable and cringeworthy. Like I said though, there are cases all across history where this works out incredibly well, so I wanted to take some time today to discuss how this whole supergroup thing kind of came into being and just how overused and abused the term supergroup has become over probably the last 10 to 15 years or so. Before we dig in, though, a few caveats. To me, a supergroup had to release at least one album, a real album, not just, you know, hey, they have this killer jam session, they're a supergroup or something like that. Also, group to me means there had to be three people, so that eliminates Deltron 3030, Run the Jewels, things like that. Sorry. One more thing. P-Funk doesn't count. There have been so many incarnations of Parliament and Funkadelic and the All-Stars and that whole crew. We know. They're all amazing. They are a super group, but, you know, we're just going to leave the funk alone for a second. When you really think about it, the idea of a supergroup actually goes all the way back to the jazz era, when so many jazz greats were playing on one another's albums. Now granted, back then they didn't call them supergroups, but when you look at the lineup of, you know, like, let's look at the lineup of Miles Davis's 1959 masterpiece, Kind of Blue. You've got John Coltrane on there, Bill Evans, Paul Chambers, and Jimmy Cobb in that backing band, and oh yeah, you also have Cannonball Adderley, whose Something Else record featured Miles Davis, Art Blakey, Hank and Sam Jones, all of these people, true luminaries of the genre, and those are just two of what, trust me, are hundreds of all-star lineups within the world of jazz. Like, all over the jazz scene, you just have these ridiculous lineups, because Musicians were up and coming, or even once they were established, they were like, sure, I'll, I'll play on your record. It was a much different time. But in a more modern, let's, let's call it a rock-centric era of the supergroup, I think you can point to 1966 as the first true example. This is where you get the formation of a little band called Cream. You know Cream, Sunshine of Your Love, The White Room, I Feel Fine, mega classics. And that band consisted of a drummer named Ginger Baker from... Oh, what was the band Ginger Baker was in? I think it was called the Graham Bond Organization because I'm a huge music nerd. I'm going to go with that one. Uh, if I'm wrong, get me on Twitter, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. Uh, also in the band was one of the former bass players from that other band, Jack Bruce. And rounding out the power trio was the man who was largely seen as the best blues guitarist in the UK at the time. He had played with the Yardbirds and the Blues Breakers before that, and his name was Eric Clapton. Now, Cream lasted only two years before imploding, but they managed to release four records. One of them came out after the band disbanded. Three of those, the other three, 
are outright classics. They played a few shows together in the 90s and in the aughts, but their output and legacy, it's basically the benchmark for what deserves to be the title of Supergroup, or it may also be the high watermark. I'll have to think about that one. Both Clapton and Baker would stay together and form another supergroup a few years later. And along with Steve Winwood and Rick Grek, they released the self-titled masterpiece named Blind Faith. Oh, what a record. To me, this is one of the best records ever recorded. And again, there's not a bad second on it. But that band lasted, I think it was like eight months. And uh, there, was just, there was just too much fire in the group. It could not sustain itself. It was extraordinary. And you have to have that record. But see... That's what I'm getting at. Both bands, and mind you, for the record, not a huge Eric Clapton fan, but both bands created entirely new sounds that none of those players had had before. The songs, it it didn't sound like a Steve Winwood track with a different backing band, but they were, they were, and are Blind Faith songs. Only Blind Faith sounds quite like that band. You know, those songs are that band. It's, it's, It's not a side project. It's not an offshoot. That is Blind Faith. Now, maybe a better example is this. When David Crosby, Stephen Stills, and Graham Nash decided to bring Neil Young into the mix, now, well, actually, no, hold on, let's let's jump back a second. Sorry, Crosby, Stills, and Nash was basically a supergroup already because David Crosby was in the Birds, Stephen Stills was in Buffalo Springfield, and Graham Nash was in the Hollies before they formed a musical trio. Man, I wish I wish Rock and Roll Jeopardy still existed. I'd be so good at that. Anyway, so uh, they play together and then they bring Neil Young into the mix. So the self-titled Crosby, Stills and Nash record and Deja Vu with Neil Young, those are as seminal as they get. And yet they still hold up brilliantly to this day. When they added Neil Young to the mix, it just made the sound more powerful. And it's it's the way that they weave through and around one another that makes the song so... I don't know, encompassing, but then you listen to what they did as Crosby, Stills, and Nash, or CSNY, whichever you want, and then you listen to what they were doing beforehand or after the fact, and the sound they make there is totally different. What Neil Young was doing on, you know, Harvest and Harvest Moon and After the Gold Rush and stuff like that doesn't sound like what he did with Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Same with all those other artists. It is it is a true musical entity onto itself. That's that's the difference I'm trying to get at here. And, and I know what you're thinking. Those are all classic rock bands. So, Joel, are you saying that there hasn't been a supergroup since the 70s? No, I'm not saying that at all. But I'm trying to set a standard, give a little bit of history here, so that when I start kind of going off and can't control what I'm saying, we at least know what I'm trying to get at. I mean... When you think about the sound, talent, and legacy that those bands have, you know, bands like Crosby, Stills, and Nash, bands like Cream, things like that, it's hard to put something like, I don't know, Adams for Peace under the same title. You do remember Adams for Peace, right? That horrid and not really a supergroup led by Tom York and Flea. Yeah, people were calling them the greatest thing ever in 2013. Thankfully, people woke up and realized it was just not a very interesting project. But really, really, we're, we're talking two completely different levels of approach and different levels of talent. In the 80s, to, to get things a little more recent, and we'll catch up to today, in the 80s you had, of course, the Highwaymen. That was Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson, and Johnny Cash. That, folks... That's about as super as they get. They did three records. I think they did like a record every five years. I think it was 85, 90, and 95 were the Highwaymen records. And the first one is just spectacular. And again, the core difference is the balance. No single person overpowers the others on those songs. And that is the key to the supergroup. Balance. We're going to keep coming back to that. Jumping even closer to the present. 
I personally think that the best example of a supergroup in modern times, and and maybe even the best example of a supergroup since Blind Faith woke up, broke up, not since they woke up, since they broke up, the best example to me in modern times was a band called Oysterhead. They only lasted a year, but what a record and what a tour. Now, if you're not familiar, Oysterhead was a trio consisting of Stuart Copeland from The Police on drums, Trey Anastasio from Fish on guitar and vocals, and Les Claypool from, well, Primus and Sausage and a million other projects on bass. It was supposed to just be a one-off performance at the New Orleans Jazz Fest. They asked Les Claypool to kind of put together a group, and that's what he did. But they had so much fun playing live that they did an entire record and tour, and the record was called The Grand Pecking Order. This record shows what happens when musicians used to leading bands accept the role of a follower at different points. You can hear influence from each of their groups throughout the record, but each song has a sound completely unique to Oysterhead. They trade vocals and grooves, and it is a completely egoless project. That is the key. When the ego goes out the window, this is what occurs. The the true magic of a supergroup is allowed to happen. When the musicians are truly there to see if they can create something new, something totally different, and, and not just kind of treading out what they're good at with other backing people, that is what a supergroup is all about. And that is the exact reason why I don't think bands like A Perfect Circle or The Racketeurs or Temple of the Dog qualify as a supergroup. I know a lot of people are going to get up in arms in this, but to me... They're basically making the same sound they normally do, but with different people. Jack White is the slight exception there because he has so many different bands. But if you look at everybody else in that group, they're really not stepping outside of their comfort zone or creating a sound we haven't heard before. I'm not saying that because I don't like these bands, because a lot of them, I really do. I mean, come on, how can you not like Temple of the Dog or the Consolers of the Lonely Record? I mean, really. But I feel... I feel it's situations like these where the term supergroup starts to get abused. I mean, let's look at Velvet Revolver, a band I don't like very much. Sure, it's mostly Guns N' Roses with Scott Weiland from Stone Temple Pilots on vocals. But even though I don't like them, you have to admit they managed to carve out a sound that rocks really hard, but it is not in any way a clear replacement of their former bands. It's a different tone, a different it's a different strain of rock. And again, that is the difference we're looking for here. Did you create something new? To contrast that, Audio Slave, to me, is not a supergroup. Songs on those records are basically a bit rougher, a bit dirtier version of Soundgarden with some little effects on it. It's nothing new. It's nothing exciting. And I think that's why it didn't really last, because they all knew we've done this all before. This is ground we've covered. So, yeah, they have stellar lineups of famous musicians, but so did Zwan and Super Heavy. You remember Super Heavy, right? The project with Mick Jagger and Joss Stone and a bunch of other people. You don't? You never heard Super Heavy? Do yourself a favor. Don't go look it up. Trust me. And that, though, is the problem. There's no standard. The second you see a few famous musicians on the same record, oh, it's supergroup time. Oh, they're going to revolutionize music. As I see it, supergroup is a title you need to earn. Just because you've sold a bunch of records doesn't mean that just qualifies. It's not that easy. You may be able to lead an iconic band or have some game-changing solo career, but the ability to create musical magic with an entirely different group of people, all of whom have similar levels of achievement, that is something onto itself. I mean, even the Traveling Woolberries, and I know, I am treading on some holy ground here. The Traveling Woolberries with Tom Petty, 
Jeff Lynn, Roy Orbison, Bob Dylan, and George Harrison. That I mean, that's an amazing lineup. And even with those guys, all of them, be- beyond icons, they managed to have a handful of good songs, maybe one or two great songs. And while it sold a ton based on the lineup, history tells us those records are good. They're not great, though. They're just not. Were they a super group? I don't know. Maybe they're the borderline. Maybe, you know what? We're going to change this. Maybe that is the litmus test. If it's more impressive in terms of the talent and combined final sound than the Traveling Woolberries, then they can be a super group. If not, have a seat on the bench with Boxcar Racer and Mad Season. Yeah, I just put those two on the same level. Sorry. But seriously, uh, okay, I just got a thought and I'm going to run with this. Okay, here we go. Let's step out of our comfort zone here. We're going to talk about sports for a minute. Yep, sports. Okay, just, just follow me on this one. You can have the best players in the world on one team. It doesn't mean they're going to go undefeated or win it all. They have to be able to create a new level of greatness together for that all to work, right? They, they Right? I, I think I just made a relevant sports analogy on the spot. Go me. But, but you get it, right? You can be an amazing player, and you can play on a great team. But when they switch you to another team with a bunch of superstars, th- there it is right there. You have to balance. You have to learn how to work with each other to form some completely new style of greatness. All groups with famous lineups are not created equally. So next time someone comes along and they're talking about, oh, I don't know, the guys from Metallica are going to finally do that long-awaited record with Dr. Dre, and you heard that Danny Carey from Tool is on it and Phil Anselmo's going to show up, give a moment of pause before anointing them a supergroup and wait until they have a record out and see if they were able to combine for something larger than the sum of their parts. That is the sign of a supergroup, and not just, you know, another ego wank fest. Why were they there? Why did they do it? And did they succeed? Did they find a new balance? And have they given you something new? (sighs) Okay, yeah. So uh, I had to get that out of my system. It's been driving me up the wall. So who are your favorite supergroups? And and who do you think is far from deserving of the title? And who do you think gets, you know, who do you think didn't get the title that should have it? Hit me on Twitter at The Daily Guru and at Get Ear Fuel and let me know your thoughts on supergroups. Before we call it a week, though, I do, of course, have your weekly Ear Fuel listening assignment. For those of you new to the podcast, each week I assign an album to listen to in full, beginning to end, without any distractions or interruptions. It comes from the idea, and I see it all the time these days, music has become largely relegated to a background task. You're at the gym, you're on the subway, you're going to work, you're driving, and and this assignment is about consciously listening to music just for the sake of music alone. Now, this week, since she came up a few times, your assignment is Erica Badu's fantastic 1997 record, Baduism. Some people call Baduism neo-soul, some refer to it as various styles of R&B, and some even say it's a bit hip-hop. Whatever you label it, though, the key is to listen to it. Seriously, for me, I see it as more neo-soul than anything, as these grooves run ridiculously deep. It's, It's one of those albums where there are so many phenomenal progressions and riffs that it's hard to pick just one. You know, on some days, you need that smooth knock to on and on. Other days, call for the thump skip of Four Leaf Clover. I mean, the reality is there's not an off moment anywhere to be found on this record and the roots jazz legend ron carter and many other big names can be found at various points here however regardless of the track and regardless of whoever's on it there's no question that miss badu is the star from beginning to end this was her open letter to the world to let them know the game would never be the same again 
and nearly 20 years later, the record remains unmatched. It's the way her voice moves across every song. It's, it's, it's got the perfect understanding of where to be strong and where to be subtle that makes this such a singular musical experience. There's this smooth, almost 70s soul style running across the entire record, but Badu, she, she almost seems like she's in more musical company of Nina Simone or maybe Roberta Flack in terms of the way she works the microphone. She can be sultry or scorned, a bit silly, and school you in every area of life, all without ever needing to leave what, well, let's be honest, it's, it's kind of an endless vocal range. She can go all over the place. And this, folks, this is what raw talent is all about. You can feel the emotion in every word she sings. And it's the way she does this while she's painting vivid pictures of reality most musicians prefer to avoid that has made her a true icon. Whether she's looking at a stark single future on other side of the game, dream of a life that could have been on the song Next Lifetime, or, well, on and on does its magic every time, and you just can't ignore a force like this, really. From beginning to end, Baduism is a true pleasure to experience time and time and time again, and whether it's a simmering summer evening or a snowed-in afternoon, every time is the perfect time to go give this one a spin. If you don't have Baduism already, go change that right now. Thank me later. So that's all for this week. You can find me on Twitter at at GetEarFuel and at The Daily Guru. And the podcast is in the iTunes and Google Play stores under EarFuel and at SoundCloud.com slash GetEarFuel. And hey, if you dug what we're doing here, go tell a friend or three about it. That is your weekly EarFuel. Share and enjoy. (laughs) 